Well, good evening. I'm impressed on the number of people who came out on such a cold night. It's, uh, I almost didn't want to come. <laughs> and I don't live that far away. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, you are a great God. All power, all authority reigns in you. And Father, as we look at the flood, we'll realize that that proves that you're a God of authority and you're a God of great power. And you are unchangeable. You are unshakable. And you call the shots. So Father, we want to bow before you tonight and realize that we are man and you are God. And help us to put ourselves in the right place. Even more so, help us put you in the right place. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, back on September 4th, I shared a message on the evidence of the flood. And I shared a whole bunch of different things that talked about various aspects of what are some of the issues that are in our world today that would indicate there was a flood. And I want to I just go through that rather quickly tonight. In fact, this is what I want to do tonight. I want us to talk a little bit, just, just ram through. There's some actually room on your notes, on your note paper there, just to take a little bit of notes of things you observe that might uh, kind of strike your, your uh, fancy, your interest. I also want us to look at some things. What would we expect to find if we, are, if we, if we anticipated there was actually a flood? You know that the secular world says there was no worldwide flood. In fact, there's a lot of Christians who would say there was not a worldwide wide flood, but there was only a local flood. What would you expect to find if it was really a worldwide flood? And then what impact does that make on mankind? The fact that what do we see in the whole process of God and the whole aspect of the flood, what impact does that make on our lives? Or for that matter, mankind back then and mankind today? And what can we learn and apply to our lives? I don't want just this just to be a message and, oh, this is a good story about the flood. This is a good thing in history that we want to take a look at. I want us to come away with something that says, I understand God a little bit more and understand me a little bit more in my situation. So here's what the Bible says. It says this is what happened in the flood, that the fountains of the deep burst open. It rained for 40 days. The water covered the highest mountains. The waters prevailed on the, after that, uh, after, the, uh, after all that happened uh, for 150 days. It said the ark rests on the mountains of Mount Ararat. There was another, after uh, that, there was another 73 days before the mountaintops were seen. And then in all, there was 378 days in the ark. That's, that's just the facts. What's the physical evidence uh, we shared this that on September 4th that at one time both creationists and, and secular um, uh, scientists believed that there was one big huge continent that ended up breaking up into what we see today as a present day uh, continents that we see and there's a big reason for that the the mid-atlantic ridge is a strong support of the concept of what they call the plate movement and things breaking up and actually causing some huge huge catastrophes and then there's matching strata across the continents. Believe it or not, some of the coal that's in Pennsylvania, that actually, that whole line of coal goes all the way over to England. So they match up, and not only in that, but other areas. 
uh, we see that there's a strata that is um, of sandstone and its equivalents that covers such a huge massive part of our country. In fact, it can see, be seen really well in the Grand Canyon. If you look there, you can see the red here, the kind of light colors here that kind of go back over here. Then you've got this light color here. Huge strata that just kind of cover huge, huge areas across our land. And so there's reason to believe that there was a huge flood that did, that did all that. And then there's other evidences. Like, for instance, there's billions of dead things that are buried in rock layers, laid down by water all over the earth. All over the earth. In fact, they're laid down in various different types of rock layers. For instance, this is chalk. This is actually in, in London. This is hundreds of feet deep. There's all sorts of different fossils there, one of which quite a few are, are fish, and fish are very hard to fossilize. You've got to cover them up real quickly. And um, so there, there's chalk. There's also sandstone. This is actually out on in, in um, Wyoming at the top of Mount Moran at a, at a height of 14,000 feet. It's in the Grand Tetons. It's sandstone made from sand with marine animals in it, 14,000 feet high. And they have granite. This happens to be in a dinosaur monument. They found in this dinosaur monument thousands and thousands of animals, all different species, all mixed together in one great place. Um, and not very far from there, just about 200 yards from there, they have seafloor, uh, that they have some fossils from that. They've got other fossils that are marine fossils within 200 yards of where this is right here. Pretty amazing when you think about it in granite. And then you have the Liberia tar pits. Uh, Penny and I were there just this last, uh, this last December. Never been there before in California. We've been in California, but never went there. And, and it was amazing to be there. The only animals that are there in Liberia tar pits are prehistoric, pre-Ice Age. There are no animals after they're historic, but what their perspective is that they just happen to fall in to, to the tar pits and get stuck. And if that was only that kind of animals, why was it that you only had, it, it just doesn't make sense that you wouldn't have domestic animals and other animals in between the Ice Age and now. They found, believe it or not, over 400 saber-toothed tigers. On the back wall there, you see all these different dots? That's many of the skulls. They're in there. They're all conglomerated, all mixed together as if they were just kind of washed in together. Their perspective is they just happened to fall in. Well, why did God flood the earth? I think that's a really good question. I think it's a good question because of the makeup that He made within our world. How many of you ever planted a garden? Good. I bet it never looked, it was a beautiful place, by the way, the world that God created, and I'll bet your garden never looked this good, right? In fact, I'll bet your garden didn't look good, this good. This is right, this is in Paris, just outside the Louvre. And um, that's the number three, number one, number third garden, if you were to, to rate gardens, that's supposedly the number three. And this is the number two in Netherlands. This is the number one in London. My guess is that when God created the world, and even outside of Eden, it looked a lot better than this. Turn with me to Genesis 1, and we're going to read Genesis 1 real quick and make some observations.
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters he gathered together he called seas. And God saw it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in their, in, which is in their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which their seed, which is their seed, and according to its kind. And God saw it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let it be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth, across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, 
Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is in the that is on the face of the of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening, there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. I find that a, a pretty impressive, pretty impressive uh, of, um, account. A beautiful, beautiful earth. I know Eden was there, and, and obviously Eden was better than everything. But I don't think we fully understand how lush that, grant, that earth had to be. Do you realize the coal is a fossil fuel? Most, off, most, most likely it's, it's nothing more than vegetation that's been crushed. In some areas, it's thousands of feet deep. Coal, you realize how long we've been using coal? And oil tends to be the breakdown of animals and vegetation. And how much do we take out of the ground every day? And where do we find it? It's all over the earth. Do you realize how lush our earth must have been before the flood? I just think it had to be quite an amazing thing. God decided that he was going to destroy all plants. He decided he was going to reconfigure the earth. He decided he was going to wipe out billions of animals. He decided he was going to kill all mankind. And then he pronounced everything that he said was very good. Why would God want to do that? Well, we want to look at Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. That tells us why. But it still seems like a pretty drastic decision. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were in the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. They were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now, I don't know who these were, but I think they contributed. They had to contribute to the fact of some of the problems that were going on at the time that God caused the flood. We're not going to go into the other aspects of it. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that, and that every intention and the, of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And God was sorry that he had made man on the earth. Some translation says he regretted that he made man. And it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I still am amazed that God would 
get rid of something so beautiful. Have you guys seen this house? It's out on Highway 1. I, 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 it's been, it's looked so much like this for about, for the last 11 and a half years I've lived in this area and I've always been interested in this house. I stopped there one day before it was all boarded up just to look inside. And it is a mess. It is terrible. It kind of looks good on the outside except for all the windows that are open. But if I was the owner that built this house, I would tear it down. I would definitely rip it apart and put something new there. This is a set of china. It looks very similar to the set of china that my mom had when I was growing up. She loved that china. And we, we were a group of six kids, my mom and my dad. And one day my mom, I think she was at work, but I'm not sure, but she was gone, and we had some instructions in our house. Clean up the house and wash the dishes. My mom got home, it was about noon, I believe. She got home and nothing had been done. So she said, I'm going to walk around the block, and I expect these dishes to be done when I get back. We didn't do the dishes. And my mom told us to take every piece of that china and throw it out. She had us take all the extra pieces out of the cupboard, every plate, every cake plate, every cup, every bowl, and every serving dish, and put it in the trash. So we thought, she's just doing a thing on us. So we took them out, and we put them in the trash nice and carefully, stacked them really well, figuring she'd get up in the middle of the night, and she'd bring them back. She didn't do it. And until I was studying this passage and getting ready for a sermon, did I fully understand the impact of what she did. My mom gave up something she dearly loved because we needed discipline. God destroyed a world that he dearly loved that he sat back and not only said, this is good. He said that time and time again. On day four, on day five, on day three, on day six, he said it twice. And he says, this is very good. And he destroyed the world because of sin. I don't know about you, but there's some things that really impact my heart when I, when I read, this, read that passage. You notice how it says that, well, let's just look at this. This is what God saw. God saw the wickedness of man was great. He saw that every intention of his heart, of everyone in the world, was evil continually. I, I think that's pretty astounding. People estimate that there could have been easily a billion people living at the time of Noah. People lived really long. They had many, many children who reproduced and reproduced. Can you imagine 
being in a world that everyone around you thought nothing but evil thoughts continually all the time. And God was sorry he made man on the earth. What bothers me about that statement is that I wonder how many people God would say that to today. I'm sorry I put you on this earth. I don't know. But that's something that God says at the time of the flood. It grieved him to his heart. I think that's an interesting statement. It didn't just grieve him, but it broke his heart. It's like I'm sure when my mom came home, we broke her heart that we hadn't listened to her, we hadn't obeyed her, and it made her do something drastic. He was grieved to his heart. And he was ready to deal with a problem. He was going to blot out man, animals, insects, birds, by bringing a flood. Destroy it all. I'm getting rid of it. I don't want to hear anymore. And you know what? When you take a look at our world, he totally covered it up. When you think about it, when you think about the strata that are above the, the oil, the strata that is above most of the, most of the, uh, the um, coal, when you take a look at some of these places where they find these beds where all these animals are all mixed up, you realize it was a terrible, terrible thing. When you take a look at that, something happened to take sand from the marine layer up 14,000 feet. Something happened that really devastated our world. God made a mess of what he had done. There are several observations from this that I'd like us to take a look at. One is God is a patient God. It doesn't sound like when you think about it, the fact that he, he, he did what he did in the course of just over a year. But he's a patient God. The whole world had been corrupted. God patiently waited from the day that he created Adam and Eve to the time of Noah, and he let people go their own way. I don't know how many thousands of years it was. Most people think about 2,000. But he waited and waited patiently for them to turn. So we understand that he's patient. Sin grieves him. His patience comes to an end. It only goes so far. There's a time when it runs out. God deals with sin and we can be sure of it. One scripture says, our sin will find us out. God will deal with it. And God honors those who are righteous. The last verse, or the one verse we didn't read, but God, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. We know the story. Eight people made it through the flood. And right before the flood, I don't know when Methuselah died, but I'm assuming he was a believer. The year that Methuselah died, the flood came. So probably just before the flood, there were nine people amongst at least a billion that at least cared about God. Let's take a look at some of those things. God is patient. In Hebrews 2, and Hebrews, I'm saying 2 Peter 2 5, he says this If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought the flood upon the earth. You say, well, that doesn't seem like patience. That seems like grace. God gave grace to these people for a hundred years. We'll get that a little bit later. 
Second Peter 3.9, God is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's patience. The scripture says people are going to say, what's happening? Why hasn't Christ come? Why hasn't Christ come? Well, Christ hasn't come because he's waiting for people to come to know him. He's patient, Second Peter 3, 2. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought back safely. Scripture tells us that, that Noah, that Noah was a preacher of righteousness, a herald of righteousness, it says in the ESV. For 100 years, can you imagine Noah's building his ark and as he's going around getting wood and getting the various things he needs, what do you need this for, Noah? Well, I need it for an ark. Well, what do you, what's an ark? Well, I got to build this big, huge boat because God's going to bring all the animals into this boat and there's going to be this huge flood. And, and I want to be safe. God told me he's going to take me in this ark. You want to come with me? For a hundred years, Scripture is saying, God allowed them to hear the words of Noah, and only his sons and his wives listened to him. That's patience. That's tons of patience from my perspective. He's patient. Sin grieves God. How do we know that? In Romans 1, verses 18 to 31, I want to read that to you because Paul is talking about the unrighteous person. And I just can't help but think that the people in Noah's day, that the people in Noah's day were no less off, maybe worse, than what we read in this chapter. Now, you can try and look for it, but there's 23 different things 23 different attitudes, thoughts, actions, and attitudes that are sinful here. Listen to it. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature. Boy, I can't imagine that not being stronger back by the time of the, the time of the flood than it is now, but it, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them over to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to dishonorable passions. 
For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations for, with women and were consumed with passions for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a based mind or a depraved mind uh, to do that, um, to do what ought not to be done. They are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They know God's decree that those who practice such deserve to die. And they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Can you imagine what it must have been like, what God must have felt like when he watched his entire world that he called good, very good, go to this kind of a, this kind of behavior? I can see why he would be very upset. In... Um, in Second Peter, there's nine sinful thoughts, actions, and attitudes. Second Peter two two ten and Second Peter two ten. I've got to find it here. Those who, in, those who indulge in the lust of def, a defiling passion and, despite, and despise authority, bold and willful they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. And then going down to verse 12, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born uh, to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters at which they are ignorant, will also, they will also be destroyed in their, in their destruction, suffering wrong, as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way. They have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Baal, who loved gain for wrongdoing. Nothing, nothing but unrighteousness. Sin grieves God. His patience doesn't come to it. His patience finally has an end to it. It only goes so far. The flood came 100 years after Noah began to build it. Examples of Israel. Remember Israel? Remember how many times you think of the judges. They came into the promised land and God gave them everything and then they'd forget God and God had to come back and discipline them. He said, you're not looking at me. So they dis he disciplined them. They come back to God. Seven times the cycle of they're, they're loving God. They go away from God. God judges them. They come to God. God, God uh, they go away from God. God judges them. Constantly, God's dealing with them. Remember Pharaoh? Takes ten plagues. Pharaoh says, who is God that I shall obey him? Remember Ananias and Sapphira? It wasn't that big of a lie. Well, we only gave 40% of our land. But we're going to tell them we gave 
I'm going to deal with you guys. Matthew 24, 37 to 39. For, there, for as it were in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. They were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So it will be when the Son of Man comes. When Christ comes, there's judgment coming with him. That's a pretty hefty thing, sin. God deals with sin. Oops. I did it. Did it. Sorry about that. Wrong one. Thanks, Howard. It's called judgment. God says to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. And I suppose there's times in our life where God would say, I am determined to get rid of this sin in Ed Lockmiller. And he deals with me treacherously sometimes. You mean to face things, face my sin openly and honestly to deal with it correctly. But there is a time when he says, I'm determined to deal with the sin in your flesh. And for some people, it's death. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. Romans 3.23, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. James 1.8 says that we can't say we have no sin because we do have sin. Turn with me to Psalms. Psalms 14.1-3. It's quoted in the New Testament, but he's a little bit more clear here. The psalmist says this, The fool says in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt, they do abominable, abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven and on the children of man to see if there is anyone who understands, who, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none that does good, not even one. God deals with sin, and I'm not a person who am able to do good. What does that say about me? Romans 14.10 says, We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Pretty harsh words. Hebrews 9. I like the way the ESV puts it. It's appointed for man to die once. There's no reincarnation. We only have one chance. And after that comes the judgment. We have one lifetime to get to come to know Christ. God honors those who are righteous. Interesting perspective. So Christ has offered... So, so Christ... I lost my place here. So Christ had been... So Christ had been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who who are eagerly waiting for him. There is hope. 1 Peter 3.20, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited, uh, waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight, passions, persons were brought safely through the water. God provides a way out. 
The, um, how can I do it? Let me just turn to Isaiah 53. You know this passage, but it's a passage that I think is very fitting for what we're talking about. Isaiah says this in Isaiah 53, starting at verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him smitten, stricken by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was uh, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep, sheep have gone astray. We have all turned, every one of us, to his own way. And God laid on him the iniquity of us all. We're adopted. Look at what John says. The light, the true light which comes into the world to everyone is coming. The true light which gives us, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. Realize we're adopted. God hates sin so much, and he loves those who come to him so much, he wants to adopt us. We get an inheritance. We get a home. We get to call Christ our brother and God our Father. That's how much he wants to overcome sin in our life. Uh, Romans 3, 23, 21 to 25 says it's by faith. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, God's righteousness, apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. How can I get righteousness? Through faith in Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. All are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as an appreciation, an appeasement, a covering by his blood to be received by faith. We have the adoption by faith into his family. We have righteousness through faith. God hates sin so much, he destroyed an entire world by a flood. A world that he created that said was very good. He destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. He exiled the Jews. He put Ananias and Sapphira to death. He created a place called hell. He set his son to take our judgment. So God sent a flood because of sin. And God sent a Savior to conquer sin. What would I hope that we take away from this message? I would hope that when, when we walk home, we begin to see how much God loved us, how much God loved each one of us, to deal with the sin that he desperately hates. And he's shown when he deals with it, he deals with it abruptly and strongly. And what we deserve, we don't get because it went on the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I I stand amazed. I, I, I never 
I, I, I really never really fully understand the penalty of sin. I don't take it seriously. I so often just put it as just a simple thing. God, you hate it. You judge it. And for those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, you've taken that judgment on the cross. For every person who sinned during the time of the flood, you bore that sin on the cross. For every sin that I've committed in my life or will commit, you took on the cross. Father, there probably isn't enough thank yous in the world to tell you how much we appreciate that. And I would ask, Father, if there's anybody here today, tonight, who's never dealt with the sin in their life, that they would, by God's grace, say, I want to accept the gift of forgiveness and righteousness that only comes through Christ. And his righteousness becomes our righteousness. And pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.